0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org.
1: We are launching a new series called Finding Peace. We want to talk a little bit about this burning question of our mental well-being. It's a huge issue in our culture. And I want to talk a little bit about just strategies that I have discovered as I've studied this material after, over the last few months, and really over the last few years, and kind of shed some light on that, as well as pointing out how a lot of the literature we see in psychology in terms of what we should do to overcome anxiety actually overlaps pretty well with biblical content, as we'll see. So I think it'd be good for us to sort of frame this series that we're doing, this three-week series. I think, first of all, we need to consider that there is a mental health problem in our culture. And I probably don't need to tell you that, but here is some research that came from Jean Twenge's book, uh, iGen, where she tracks sort of the, the increased mental health issues in our culture. This chart shows the percentage of 8th, 10th and 12th graders who report being very happy. As you can see, during the 90s, when I was a teenager, it was at an all-time low. And that was like when Nirvana and a lot of the grunge bands were around. (laughs) People were real sad and kind of angry at their parents. And then, as you can see, in the early 2000s, the millennial generation had a big rebound and, and reported feeling lots of happiness. And yet, you see that in the last several years from about 2011 onward, that there has been again a huge decrease in people who say that they feel happy. In addition to this, we see that the percentage of undergraduate college students who felt overwhelming anxiety or who felt so depressed that they couldn't even function in the last 12 months has increased dramatically over the last few years. And again, I probably don't need to tell you this because some of you sitting here right now, many of you are dealing with crushing anxiety. Well, it's interesting because this researcher, Sonia Lyubomirsky wrote this book called The How of Happiness, and she was asking some real basic questions. How much does genetics play into our happiness How much do our circumstances play into our happiness? And she did an extensive study that included identical twins who lived in the same household as well as fraternal twins who lived in the same household as as well as people who had undergone some pretty serious circumstances in their lives, some tragedies. And her findings were very interesting. She found that 50% of our happiness comes from what you might call your genetic set point or your happiness set point. And this is sort of your predisposition toward being happy. This this kind of represents whether or not you fall in the divide of the glass half full person or the glass half empty kind of person. You might actually look at this and think 50% that seems really significant. But I think that no matter how you look at this, I think what's interesting is that 50% is sort of not determined, but your predisposition is set by your genetic set point. And then, interestingly, only 10% of life happens or circumstances plays into your happiness. I think that would be a surprise to many of us. And we're actually going to talk about that in a couple weeks when we talk about having joy amidst trials and circumstances in our life. And then, interestingly, 40%... our happiness is due to our actions and thoughts. So that's very interesting because it suggests to us that there's good news out there. You know, most people who feel like they are struggling with anxiety and depression often describe feeling uh, this, this feeling of hopelessness. And yet this picture gives us a hopeful picture. That there are things that we can do to be able to break out of the anxiety that we feel. Now, I don't want to be reductionistic here. You know, there are some people who are dealing with major anxiety disorder. And I think in those cases, you need to go and see a clinician. You need to go and see a psychiatrist to get an evaluation. But I do think that the picture suggests to us that even in those cases, a combination of medication as well as Maybe thinking about things differently or, as the Bible says, taking our thoughts captive can actually help our thinking and and, and the way that we feel. Now, it's interesting, this guy, Jeffrey Schwartz, um, he wrote, You Are Not Your Brain. And he gives a four-step solution to sort of breaking out of this cycle of unhappiness and depression that we often feel. And it's really interesting because he points out that in modern science, the discovery of neurogenesis, the idea that your actions and your thoughts can actually change your brain chemistry, has been sort of a game changer in our thinking. From his book, he quotes others who are looking at his research He says, drawing on Dr. Schwartz's strong belief that the mind can change the brain, the UCLA researchers asked people with OCD to participate in a research study where they either took medication or learned our four-step approach to dealing with the intrusive negative messages that they were hearing in their minds. The team scanned people's brains before treatment and 10 to 12 weeks after they had been following our method or taking medications. Much to our delight, they found that the people who used our four-step method had the same positive changes in their brains as the people who took medications to treat their OCD. This is something that I've found across the board in the things that I've read, that medication has uh, has efficacy, it can help you in your mood, but interestingly, training your brain to think differently or to use their term, cognitive behavioral therapy, is just as effective. So even in extreme cases, the combination of meds and also utilizing this cognitive behavioral therapy can actually be very helpful in overcoming anxiety and other mental illness that we face. It's interesting, he points out that after they did the brain scan, they actually found a noticeable change in the brain. So the RCD part of the brain actually represents a part of the brain that is overactive in OCD and after going through this four-step program and trying to utilize it, they found after 10 to 12 weeks there was a reduction in the size of that part of the brain. Very interesting. They go on to say that recent research in Germany replicated our findings. Those researchers found that OCD patients' symptoms decreased significantly when they simply listened to an audio CD that explained our treatment method. So what I'm trying to suggest here is that there is hope and that you're not a prisoner to your genetics, I think a lot of times we feel fatalistic about our ability to break out of our mental illness or our mental health problems. And what the research suggests is that there's actually a hopeful picture out there. So tonight I want to focus in on the first topic, which is the anxiety epidemic. Anxiety is skyrocketing in our culture and before we talk about steps that you can take to help overcome anxiety in your life, I want to talk first of all about what Dr. Robert Leahy calls the dirty dozen. And these are 12 strategies that don't work when you're feeling worried or anxious. The first thing is seeking reassurance. You know, when you're feeling anxious or you're feeling worried, you seek reassurance. And so sometimes if you're concerned about looking unattractive, what you might do is you might try to garner some praise for your looks from people around you. Or uh, you might feel insecure because you're at a party and you're talking to some guy and then he yawns. And so you start to feel like you're really boring. (laughs) You see, seeking reassurance doesn't work Because you can always doubt the reassurance later. When you talk to your friend and you say, do you think I look attractive? And she says, yeah, of course you look attractive. You start to wonder, is she lying to me even though she knows I actually look less attractive than I did a year ago? And so there's always room to doubt when you're seeking reassurance. Not to mention, we oftentimes feel paralyzed when we finally come up with a solution to our worries and yet we feel paralyzed because the solution that we came up with isn't perfect. And so we're constantly searching for that one perfect answer or solution to our problem that doesn't ever present itself. What about this one? Checking over and over again. This of course can become uh, a disorder where it can descend into obsessive compulsive disorder where we're constantly checking. But when you check over and over again, there is this concern that maybe your memory is failing or maybe you don't, um, maybe you're not seeing things correctly. And so this, this compulsion to check over and over again gives you this sense of certainty and assurance that you're looking for. You know, some of the thoughts that come into our mind as we're checking is if I check, I can reduce my uncertainty. Secondly, I, can to- I cannot tolerate uncertainty in my life. Or if I catch it early, I can prevent worse things from happening. This is one that hits me pretty often. I can't rely entirely on my memory. I've had cases where I'm driving... Away from a coffee shop, and I think to myself, wait a second, did I put my laptop in my bag? And so I'll pull over on the highway, I'll pull over and I'll check my bag and be like, okay, it's there. Here's another one I can never be too careful. Or it's my responsibility. You know, <clears throat> imagine that you're worrying because your boyfriend didn't text you back immediately, right? So you text him. Five minutes go by and you start to worry because you're like, wait a second, he hasn't texted me. So you check your phone to make sure that your phone wasn't on silent. and You find out he hasn't texted you. Fifteen minutes later, you start to worry because he still hasn't texted you. So you decide to go on Friend Finder <laughs> and go find his location. Because you think to yourself, you know what, maybe, maybe he's like in a rural area. Maybe he's out of, the, out of the city and there's bad reception and maybe the text message isn't coming through. And so you check his location and he's in town. So about an hour later, when he still hasn't texted you, you start to wonder, well, maybe my text message isn't working. So you decide that you're going to ask your friend to text you to make sure that your text message feature actually works. And it does. You know, as you continue to check over and over again, what you're trying to do is you're trying to gain a sense of certainty, which you equate with control. And really the underlying problem here is that there's a fear that if he doesn't text you back immediately, that's a sure sign that he's going to break up with you. I've heard of some cases where people are So worried about their boyfriend breaking up with them that they'll intentionally provoke an argument with their boyfriend, hoping that their boyfriend will break up with them so that they don't have to worry about getting broken up with. And so you'll see this happen where there's this compulsion to check over and over again to sort of get that sense that I'm certain I feel good. You know, checking is a compulsion, a behavior used to try to decrease your sense of anxiety. You know, imagine you're worried that you may have skin cancer. So you look every single day in the mirror to check whether or not you have any unusual spots or moles, and you notice that your mole looks a little bit unusual today. And so you decide that you're probably going to die. So you're going to go to the doctor (laughs) and... You tell your doctor that you think that you have skin cancer and you you suggest that you get a biopsy. And immediately she tells you, don't worry about it. I can tell that that's not skin cancer. And so you feel relieved for about an hour. And then you go home and start to wonder, wait a second, where did she go to medical school? Is she really as smart as she thinks she is? And so the problem with checking over and over again is that there's always room to doubt. You see, the problem with checking is that you're trying to gain a level of certainty that is unattainable. Really, checking can never address your fundamental concern, which is that I cannot stand uncertainty in my life. And as we'll see, living with uncertainty decreases that sense of anxiety dramatically. Third, trying to stop your thoughts. You know, some of us have well-intentioned friends and family, and, and in some rare cases, therapists who have told us, you know, all you need to do is just basically tell yourself, stop when you're worrying. And those of us who are accustomed to worrying a lot about our lives know that that never works, right? I want to do sort of like a little experiment. Let's try something, okay? I want you all to close your eyes. Close your eyes. All right, everybody, okay, you're the only one with your eyes open. All right, so close your eyes. Now, I want you to think of a white fuzzy bear. You know, the kind that you see in the Coca-Cola commercial during Christmas. All right, now I want you to stop thinking about that bear. Just stop thinking about that white fuzzy bear. Okay, now open your eyes. It was really hard to do that, wasn't it? Right? In fact, uh, one researcher, David Wegner, actually did this study where he told subjects to stop thinking about white bears for 10 minutes. And he said that the thought suppression actually increased the amount of thoughts that people had about white bears on the order of about one thought per minute. And so there's something about this idea of just telling yourself stop thinking about it that actually produces even more thoughts about that very thing. You know, thought stopping doesn't work because you inevitably experience thought rebounding. Think about it. Trying to stop yourself from thinking about something means that you are trying to erase something out of your memory which is very difficult to do. Not to mention stopping thinking about something implies that you're thinking about the very thing that you're trying to stop thinking about. So, that doesn't work. And really the stuff that I've read suggests that instead of telling yourself to stop thinking about something that you actually need to think about it, embrace it and replace it with other thoughts as we'll see. All right. Number 4. Collecting information. You know, after all, information is power, right? And the more information we get, the more certainty we'll have. And yet, that tends to be a trap. First of all, I think that we tend to overestimate risk. You know, in our attempt to try to find or discover the risk involved in certain behaviors, a lot of times we have bias that clouds our thinking. You know, imagine calculating risk. You know, it's, it's really a complicated process. You know, imagine you're trying to calculate the risk of the pl- a plane crashing that you might be on. So you collect all of the information about past accidents, right? So you, you study how many planes have crashed in the last 10 years. That would be relevant information to study. Number two, collect information about the amount of exposure to this risk. That is, how many flights go in and out of the country or domestically every single day. Third, determine whether there are new conditions that increase or decrease risk. More terrorist, you know, more terrorism that could make flying unsafe or new technology that can make flying even more safe. And then number four, estimate how negative the outcome will be. In this case, it's a highly negative outcome because you'll be killed in a plane, right? So that would be really the way you should should go about trying to estimate risk, but that's not really how we do things. That's, That's not the process we usually take ourselves through when we're trying to determine risk. Often, we end up misusing information in overestimating risk. Paul Slovic gives us sort of a list of things that we do, irrational rules of thumb, as he calls it, that causes us to actually overestimate risk. He says, first of all, accessibility. So if I can recall the information easily, it must be relevant. So in the case of a commercial plane crashing, you think to yourself, well, uh, I can recall a plane crashing recently. Secondly, recency, if there is recent information, it must be more likely. I heard in the last year that a plane, a 747, went down. And so, it's recent, so it seems more likely. Third, powerful images. If I have a strong mental image of this, it's more likely. So I think about a plane burning after it's crashed. Emotional thinking. If I'm anxious, it's more likely. I feel like it's more likely and so therefore the risk seems higher also severity of outcome it could be really awful then it's more likely you know again you you imagine yourself going down in a plane i've had this before i was just flying and i had this image as we were taking flight that as we were going up into the sky the wing that i was right next to would i envisioned it just ripping off (laughs) ever had that happen to you And so those sorts of thoughts tend to cause you to overestimate risk as well as personal relevance. If it's relevant to my plans, it's more likely. Well, I plan to fly tomorrow, so it seems more likely that this is going to happen. Enjoy your flight. (laughs) You know, the other thing too is that When it comes to collecting information, a lot of times your information isn't relevant. I don't know if you've ever done this before. I have. So you get a headache, right? You decide you're going to jump onto WebMD, and you're going to start researching neurological disorders. And so you start searching aneurysm, stroke, and you think to yourself, wow, maybe I had an aneurysm and I need to go to the doctor right now. See, the problem with that is it's not relevant information. You know, when you're seeking out relevant information, if you have a headache, you're trying to find things like, does Tylenol help headaches? Or how many people have headaches? Huh, let's see, 100% of people <laughs> have headaches. So that would, be, that would constitute information that's relevant. Also, I think that there's a tendency when you're collecting information to confirm only negative thoughts. Confirmation bias sets in and a lot of times that causes us to select and interpret data that we're looking at in a certain way because we've already concluded that something is drastically wrong with us. Also, you see trends that don't exist. Um, What... One researcher, uh, Nassim Tlaib says, when he wrote this book, Fooled by Randomness, he talks about how day traders fall into this tendency where every day they'll look at their screens and monitor their stocks hour by hour. And by doing so, they believe that they are starting to see trends that are emerging in the market that nobody else sees. And yet he points out that it takes usually months or years to be able to see real trends when it comes to the stock market. And that what people are seeing, these day traders are seeing, though they think it's really important information, it's just noise. And they're interpreting it as relevant information. And so the same thing happens when we are feeling worried or anxious. We're collecting information about ourselves or about the thing that we're worried about and we're starting to see trends that aren't there. Number five, avoiding discomfort. Discomfort. When you're feeling worried or anxious, you want to try to avoid the thing that you feel anxious about. And so if you're worried that you're not going to complete your assignment, you avoid it and procrastinate, which only confirms the worry as your deadline quickly approaches. Number six, numbing yourself with alcohol, drugs, and food. You know, the great appeal of numbing and escape is that it works immediately and it's easily available. We think to ourselves... I'm feeling really stressed out about money, and so I decide to go out and I drink, or maybe I feel nervous about going to a party and meeting people, and so I decide I'm going to smoke some weed and try to take the edge off. And so we do these things because they're easily available, and yet the problem with this idea of trying to numb ourselves and escape from reality is that Uh, these substances actually tell you that you can't handle your worries or your feelings. That facing reality is going to be so crushing that you won't be able to handle it. And so ultimately what ends up happening is people end up not only with their worry problem that they keep pushing forward, but also an associated problem with the substance that they're addicted to. Number seven, over-preparing. Oh, man. You know, with over-preparing, imagine uh, you're going to give a talk. Like maybe a talk like this, right? And so you decide, okay, I've read all the, the relevant research. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. And just because I'm worried about getting off track or maybe forgetting something important that I want to say, what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually write out what I'm going to say word for word, and I'm going to just read that in front of my colleagues because I want it to be good. So you get up there, you read it, and guess what? It's boring. The thing that you were worried about happened. So you decide the next time that, okay, instead of just writing it out, what I'm going to do is I'm also going to rehearse it. And so you get up there, you rehearse it, and then you read it, and guess what? You're still boring. (laughs) And so, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about over-preparing is that being over-prepared feeds right back into the belief that you have to be totally in control of your worries or everything will fall apart. You know, a lot of times when you're doing public speaking a slight pause or a miscue in something that you say causes you to feel like everything is unraveling and you're gonna forget all of your points when in reality, you should be confident because you've spent the time thinking about this stuff. In fact, research suggests that uh, people who were sitting in the crowd listening to somebody who didn't prepare immediately before giving a talk actually thought, that the person presenting did a really good job compared to those who were scrambling and over-preparing right before they gave their talk. And part of that was because they were natural. They felt comfortable instead of being mechanical. Using safety behaviors. Safety behaviors make you feel like you're in control. And they make you feel like you can overcome things that could happen. You know, imagine you have a fear of losing control of your car going off the side of a bridge. So you, you've devised all of these safety behaviors. You decide that whenever you can, you're going to avoid bridges at all, possible, at all possible. Also, if you have to drive through a bridge, you decide that you're going to slow down, you're going to turn the radio off so you can make sure to pay attention, and that you're going to avoid looking over the edge of the bridge. And so when you create all of these safety behaviors, it creates this sense of safety that's really an illusion. And it really reinforces this idea that I have to be in control of my life. Number nine, always trying to make a great impression. You know, people who are insecure about how people may perceive them are constantly worried about how they sound, whether they're going to say something stupid or whether they look all right. And so a lot of times this worry causes them to feel this undue sense of anxiety and often it's confirmed by neutral behavior that they're actually interpreting as negative. So when somebody makes an ambiguous statement, they're thinking to themselves, what's the worst possible interpretation or spin I can put on what they're saying? Or if somebody gives you a neutral look, you might think to yourself, are they judging me? Do they think I look stupid? Number 10, ruminating, chewing it over and over again. You know, rumination isn't exactly the same as worry, because worry is thinking about something in the future, something that could happen. Whereas rumination is about something that you're presently worried about or something that happened in the past that you're worried about. And Susan Nolan Hoeksema in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology says, people who ruminate are far more likely to be depressed and anxious and they're more likely to have reoccurrences of depression and anxiety. And so just the opposite of thought stopping, the solution isn't to indulge ourselves and to just continue to ruminate, We need to be able to acknowledge that we have these thoughts and feelings of worry, but then we need to be able to move on from that, as we'll see. Number 11, demanding certainty. Again, this is very similar to 1 and 2, so I don't want to belabor this. Um, But I will say that Robert Leahy has a really interesting insight into this. He says, since anything is possible, looking for certainty will guarantee, guarantee only one thing, that is more worry. You know, when you're you're trying to accomplish an impossible task, it's only going to create frustration and more anxiety. And finally, refusing to accept the fact that you may have crazy thoughts. I don't know if you've ever had this before, but you're sitting across the table from somebody and you're eating and you got a steak knife in your hand and this thought pops into your head. What if I take this steak knife and stab my friend right through the eye? Now, I'm not saying i ever had that thought before, but if one were to have that thought, I think that would be very disturbing, right? You know, as we're sitting there throughout the day, a lot of times immoral, disgusting, violent thoughts enter into our minds, and a lot of times that leaves us feeling guilty. Or feeling like that is saying something about who we are as a person. Worriers of all kinds believe that their thoughts or impulses are really a sign that something really bad is about to happen. People, for example, who have panic disorders believe that the thought of them having a panic attack actually is a sign that they're going to have a panic attack, when in fact, that thought of having a panic attack is actually inducing. The panic attack they, they might have. And so one of the things that we have to consider here is that as a thought enters our mind, a negative intrusive thought, which we're going to talk more about next week, that doesn't tell you anything about who you are because you're not acting on it. And that's very liberating because sometimes we sit around and we worry and we ruminate that I am an immoral person I have these violent thoughts and tendencies, and that says something about who I am. No, it doesn't. It says something about your thoughts. You know, you're not a liar if you have a thought that maybe I should lie, but you never lie. You're a liar if you continually lie, right? And so we need to be able to differentiate our thoughts from who we are. So that's the dirty dozen. Now, one thing that we have to say here as sort of a qualifier is that not all worry is bad. One of the things that's really interesting is that we can actually translate worry into action. You know, let's say you're sitting in front of your desk and the thought pops into your head, my work is mounting and I feel really buried and my boss, if she finds out that I haven't completed my tasks, is going to get really mad at me And will probably end up firing me. And if I get fired, I'm going to fall behind on my rent and my bills. And if I fall behind on my rent and my bills, that means that I'm going to lose all of my savings. And if I lose my savings, I'm going to be out on the street. Right? One of the things that we have to consider here is that as you are sitting there worrying about what your boss might end up concluding about you possibly failing to do your work is that there is on your desk five tasks that you can complete that you're not doing because you're sitting there worrying that your boss is angry at you for not doing your work. And so what can actually happen is you can translate worry into action. The other thing too is that the biblical worldview is very interesting in that it suggests that not all worry is bad, that actually having deep concern for people and love for people is a very positive thing that taking yourself out of it and thinking about other people is one way actually to reduce your anxiety and worry. And I've, and I've experienced that, where sometimes I'm worried about my life, I'm worried about something specific, and then I find myself in an opportunity where I can actually serve somebody else, get outside of myself and think about other people, and there's a huge relief that I feel from that. Okay, I want to end with just a few things that I think are steps to overcoming anxiety. And this is where I think it's really interesting how it overlaps with biblical principles that we see in Scripture. First of all, we have what's called thought flooding or exposure therapy. Okay, thought flooding is the idea that instead of telling yourself, stop thinking about that thing that's worrying you, is that instead what you do is you start envisioning the thing that you're worried about. Now that seems a little counterintuitive. But a lot of times when we start to engage our worries and our fears, we acknowledge that they're there, we start to think to ourselves, wait a second, maybe it's not as bad as I think. And Leahy in his book actually says that if you're, let's say, worried, that your girlfriend is going to break up with you. What you should do is you should say to yourself, it's possible that my girlfriend is going to break up with me. In fact, she could break up with me right now. Or maybe the next time we go out on a date. Maybe she likes another guy and is disinterested in me. And so thinking about that thing starts to get you comfortable with the idea that it could happen. That's very interesting because we see, for example, a form of thought flooding in ancient biblical wisdom. Take, for example, King David in Psalm 27, verse 2, 3, and 10. He envisions all of these negative things that could happen. He says, When evil people come to devour me, when enemies and foes attack me, Though a mighty army surrounds me, even if I'm attacked, even if my mother and my father abandon me, he's thinking of all of these possible things that could happen. It's very similar to this concept of thought flooding. And yet, one of the things that I find problematic about thought flooding is it sort of leaves you wondering, okay, so I'm comfortable with this idea. What else am I supposed to do? It doesn't give me any sort of assurance. I mean, it gets me comfortable with the idea that this could happen. And yet, I think that's where biblical wisdom sort of takes us to the next level. What's interesting is that David, in the same psalm, in verse 1 and 2, gives us the reason why he can venture into this thought flooding without feeling this impending doom. He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? You see, from a biblical worldview, you know, the reason why we can withstand these negative thoughts, these possibilities, these worries, is because there's an understanding that there's a God who's actually involved in our lives, who loves us. And is not limited in the, way that's the, in the ways that we are limited. The other thing that Leahy argues is that we should accept limitations. The fact is, we cannot control the world around us, and the people who decide that they are going to try to control the people and the situations around them feel intense sense of anxiety. The fact is that we have limitations, and we can control only certain things in our lives. And the moment that we come to this acceptance, that we are limited in what we can control, that gives us a sense of relief. The other thing he argues for is accepting uncertainty. This idea that you're going to get 100% certainty and assurance is really a myth. Because there's always room to doubt what you think or believe. And so if you can come to a place where you are able to accept uncertainty, that you don't know everything, that you can't gather enough information to make the perfect decision, there's a sense of relief that you feel. You know, intolerance of uncertainty is really the core issue for most worriers. The reason why we worry is we want to know for sure that things are going to happen the way that we envision. And that's a trap. You know, a lot of times, worriers avoid confronting the emotional impact of their experience because they never actually get to the level of experiencing their worry because they're constantly evaluating whether that thing could happen. And so what Leahy argues is that what we need to do is we need to engage what it is that we're worried about emotionally. And also, the more you can tolerate uncertainty, the less worried you'll be. In in one study, they showed that people who finally gave way to uncertainty in their lives saw uh, among the respondents that there were 77% of people who experienced more relief from their anxiety and worry. The third thing is gratitude. Gratitude helps us to and positions us to see the positive things in life instead of constantly looking at and confirming the negative bias that we have. And so gratitude's really important. One of the things that was interesting in one study, they took 80 elderly people over the age of 60. And what they decided to do is they said, with one group, they said, I want you to write down something that you're grateful for. The other group, they said, we want you to worry about or write down what you've been worried about over the last month. And then the third group, they were like, I don't know, just do something, right? They were the control group. And so what they did with all three groups is they exposed them to stimuli that actually induced death anxiety, images that would cause them to worry about their own death. And what's interesting is that there was a huge difference in people's ability to cope with that anxiety if they were able to express gratitude. Now, again, I think this is where there's this interesting overlap between what you see in psychology and biblical wisdom. Look at what the Apostle Paul has to say about these different areas. It's really, it's honestly very uh, amazing to see these come together. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7, "...do not be anxious about anything, but in everything..." By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let me unpack that. The first thing he says is, don't be anxious about anything. Which sounds like he's saying, stop. Right? But he's not. He says, don't be anxious about anything but in everything, by prayer and petition, present your request to God. You know, when you come to God in prayer, what are you doing? You're taking a posture of humility, recognizing your limitations and your uncertainty about the outcome of the thing that you're worried about, right? And so praying actually in a way, is accepting your uncertainty and accepting your limitations. And he also says that you should do this all with thanksgiving. So it's amazing how, how these things snap together. Modern science and what we see in this ancient biblical wisdom that both are pre- prescribing the same thing. And yet one of the things that I feel like is sort of a shortcoming with modern psychology is that, you know, when you accept your limitations or accept your uncertainty and even express gratitude, it sort of leaves you wanting, right? You know, imagine you, you're you late on your bills and you look at your income and you realize there is no way I'm going to be able to pay all of my bills at the end of the month. And so let's say you accept your limitations. I've done everything I possibly could do to budget, to cut Expenses that are unnecessary, and yet I see that I'm gonna fall short on my bills this month. Or let's say you accept the uncertainty of what's gonna happen. Maybe my landlord is gonna kick me out. Maybe that's gonna happen. I don't know. I'm willing to accept that uncertainty. Maybe I decide that I wanna express gratitude, so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about all the really good things that have happened in my life and how these are really troubling times but there're some really good things too none of those things wipe away the worry that you're not going to be able to pay your bills right and yet one of the things that's interesting is when you look to biblical wisdom it goes beyond what we see in modern psychology you know it's not enough to just simply accept uncertainty or our limitations or express gratitude the biblical view actually offers us the certainty of God's loving involvement. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. He says to his disciples who are anxious and worried, He says, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or drink, or about your body, or what you're going to wear. Is not life more than food and body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? You know, God doesn't suffer from the limitations or uncertainty that we face on a daily basis. And the certainty that he gives us is the promise of his word that he will take care of us. You know, one of the things that's amazing about the the biblical worldview is that God not only gives us promises, he actually demonstrates his commitment to taking care of us. We read in Romans 8 verse 32 that the Apostle Paul says, "...he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things?" You see, God demonstrated that He was willing to pay the ultimate price to give us eternal life. And so, if He's willing to go that far to provide for us, then it stands to reason that He's going to take care of all of our basic needs. And so, I think, I kind of want to end here by saying, first of all, you know, you might be a guest here and are dealing with anxiety. It's this crushing weight that you've been dealing with. And two things I want to say to you. First of all, show up next week. We're going to be talking about this idea of how to battle negative intrusive thoughts and see what modern science and also what the Bible has to say about that And secondly, you know, maybe the reason why you're here is that God is using this growing sense of need in your life, this crushing anxiety, to actually draw you near to Him. And so I want to end by sharing, having one of my friends, Ben Faust, share his story about how he struggled with anxiety and panic attacks throughout college and how God actually used that to draw him closer. So why don't we bring up Ben and give him a round of applause.
0: All right. Thanks, Conrad. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, oh, here's my name. Conrad needed an antithesis example, someone who's an expert in doing the wrong thing with anxiety. Uh, so uh, I do have a story about about this topic, and it's a cool story because um, in my case, uh, looking back, I can see real clearly how God was at work through it. Um, I I should start off by saying that um, I met Christ uh, in high school as a ninth grader. I got dragged out to a Bible study that I did not want to go to. I was totally cynical and had all the wrong uh, motivations, but in sitting under the Bible teaching's you know, week in and week out, I started to understand the message of the Bible, which I had never understood before. And at one of those meetings during the prayer time, I prayed to receive Christ. And uh, that was in ninth grade. Pretty soon after that, the guy that was bringing me out to the meetings, he took off and quit coming around. And so I took off too. And I didn't have much to do with God all through high school. And that worked out basically okay. I had a pretty good high school experience, Uh, and by the end of high school, I felt like I was winning because I got into my first choice college that I wanted to go to, which was the College of Worcester. I auditioned for this scholarship, and I won it, which was basically a full ride, and so I was like, man, I got it made. Uh, Once I got off to school, that's when things started to... I started to have problems um, almost right away, and I'm not sure. Looking back, I I don't know if it was... uh, anxiety that was caused by, there was homesickness was part of it. And, uh, also part of it is that my family had broken up during high school. And so I had, I had just kind of replaced that with a group of friends, but now I had moved away from them. I'm, I'm not really sure, but I know that it was that whatever foundation I had was gone and, or, or was not adequate. And so things started to come crashing down. Uh, I remember at first just feeling weird, like I just felt, I felt, you know, anxious. I felt uncomfortable. I remember feeling like, um, I remember describing it to a friend, like, "Man, I just feel like my my emotions are out of control. I'm not really an emotional person, but it just feels like someone hooked up an amplifier to my feelings. Everything I feel is way too strong, and it's uncomfortable. And I remember just thinking, like, "Am I going crazy or what?" And w- and one day on the way to class. I was walking to class and I was like, man, like quit, you know, just like Conrad was saying, I tried the stop it method where I was like, quit thinking crazy crap, you know? And so I like, I remember stop, stopping in my tracks and being like, I'm not going to class until I feel normal. And that didn't work. And uh, which was scary. That scared me. Like, I felt like I, I felt kind of out of control. And so I remember I sat down by a tree. I, I got upset. I started to cry. I did not go to class. And, um, and my heart was pounding. I didn't understand it at the time. Looking back, I understand that was an anxiety attack. And unfortunately, it was the first of what would, what would be many over the next couple months. And it, was, it was pretty hellish. It was a terrible time. I, was, I stopped going to class altogether. I, didn't, I, I, I was too anxious to eat. You know, you're supposed to gain 15 pounds when you go to college, right? I lost like 20 pounds because I was just a, a wreck. And, uh, I went to the, to the medical clinic there and got hooked up with a counselor, which was a total blow to my pride, and, um, uh, and I remember just showing up there every day, even when I didn't have an appointment, and I think she felt bad for me, because she was like, look, I can't see you today, and, and at one point, she said, would you like to just, I think she got the sense I just like to hang out in the waiting room. That's how desperate I was at this point. She was like, would you like to just hang out in the waiting room? And I was like, yes. And so that was what I did. I just went every day and sat around the waiting room, not even able to meet with anyone. It came to a head one night, uh, about this time of year, it was in the fall still, and I, uh, I got super upset. I, w- I went outside, I remember it was pouring down rain, and I went out behind my dorm in the grass field, and I just laid down in the rain, and I talked to God, which was the f- I hadn't done that in a long time. And it wasn't pretty. You know, I called out to God basically to curse him. And basically, you know, I remember saying like, how could you do this to me? You know, I, I'm supposed to be saved. You're supposed to take care of me and look at my life. And uh, you've, you've let this happen to me. And I remember the answer that I got back, not in a voice or anything weird, but the, the thought that came back, I believe, from the Holy Spirit was something like, dude, I didn't do this to you. You know, you haven't let me had a hand on the wheel in your life in years. You're driving. No, I haven't, I haven't done this to you. This is what happens when you're in control and push me out. And I was, I mean, it just rung through in that moment is true. And I remember calling out to God and saying, I need help. I don't know what it means. I don't know what to do or what you want me to do, but I acknowledge that I need you. Uh, and and please help me. So God answered that prayer. The next morning, which is a weird coincidence, the next morning I was supposed to go uh, travel out to New York City to visit a friend of mine who lived out there, and his dad was coming to pick me up at Worcester and drive up. So his dad comes and picks me up, and he's got all these other guys in the car with him who I didn't really know. Turns out he was a Bible study leader, and these were guys from his Zenos high school or college Bible study, and so I sat shotgun that night, driving out to New York, talking to this guy that I remotely knew from high school named Ryan Lowry. And you know, we're sitting there, and he's like, man, I haven't seen you in years. Like, I remember him being like, how are you, have you been? And I just started crying. You know, it was so awkward. I was like, oh, my life's terrible. And I'll never, I mean, he looked over at me like, oh, my god. Well, who am I stuck talking to? Um, but I told him everything. I told him that I had called out to God. I told him that I was like, I need, I need, I know that the problem here is I need God, and uh, he just said, Well, dude, I mean, it sounds like you know what you need to do. A couple weeks later, I got dismissed from Worcester. They gave me a medical leave of absence, which was kind because it meant I didn't fail, but I did lose my scholarship, and uh, I came home completely humiliated, completely defeated. Uh, more anxious than ever, uh, more depressed than ever. And so I called up that that dad, my friend's dad, and I was like, let me come check out this Bible study. And they were meeting down at 16th at the time, and I remember coming down there and almost right away feeling like, yeah, this is what I need. I need to hear the word taught. And I, I, I wanted to... I didn't want to be alone. I didn't want to be at home. And so I came to that meeting, and then I was like, what other meetings do you have? And I found, I overheard that they had a prayer meeting like a couple days later that I wasn't even invited to, but I showed up anyway. Showed up uninvited to prayer, which weirded everybody out. And I remember that they were, they were hiding their prayer list from me. And I was like, what, you know? And so I looked at it, and the reason is because it had my name on it. And that was because my mom was so worried about me that she had called up my friend's dad and been like, do you still go to a church Will you guys pray for my son? And what I, re- I remember that, you know, that these, these people had been praying for me all that time. All these, these people I didn't even know were praying for me. And, uh, and, and they, were, they thought it was awkward, but I didn't. I just got the tingles, because I was like, (laughs) dude, these people don't even know God already answered their prayer, you know? And uh, when that happened, I was like, that was a turning point in my life. I was like, I'm all in. This is what I need to do. And that was the best decision I've ever made. That time was super hard. I wouldn't relive it. I I wouldn't want to relive it, but I also wouldn't trade it, because uh, God pursued me through that, and uh And pretty much all the good things in my life. You know, it was 22 years ago. I can trace almost everything good in my life back to that night uh, calling out to him. So God does work even in the darkness. Thanks for sharing that, Ben.
1: Awesome. God, we just uh, thank you for amazing stories like Ben's. We know that there are many in this room just like that where you used uh, suffering and anxiety and mental health issues to draw people to you. And uh, we pray, too, for those people in this room tonight who are struggling currently, that you would help them gain victory and feel relief. And um, we pray, too, that this series would really bear a lot of fruit, that uh, people would see the truth and the truth would set them free and that um, it would also pique people's interest in what you have to say about relevant topics in our culture today and we pray that in jesus name amen
0: this study was recorded at xenos christian fellowship and is copyrighted you may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it